Episode 143, Bobo. I'm Assistant Curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to an October 5th, 2011 podcast from the Kansas Museum of History. In this podcast, we discuss Kansas artifacts and the stories behind them. Hey, a little less conversation, a little more action, please. All this aggravation is satisfaction in me. A little more bite, a little less bark. The drive-ins of the 1950s were a cultural milestone. Once food was delivered directly to the automobile, the American eating habits were never the same. Join curator Blair Tarr and me as we examine menu boards from Bobo's Drive-In in Topeka, Kansas. Though most drive-ins were replaced with drive throughs Bobo's is more successful now than ever before. What's the secret to their success? Some say it's the apple pie. Come on, baby, I'm tired of talking. Grab your coat and let's start walking. Then, we go behind the scenes with Public Relations Officer Teresa Jenkins to look at a children's activity book produced by the museum. The book is intended to educate fourth graders about Kansas history, but we found that adults get a kick out of it too. Finally, in Six Degrees of William Allen White, we connect White, a small town newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to Harley Davidson, a motorcycle company with a storied past. Did White once don chaps and a bandana on his way to Sturgis? But first, Bobo. Good morning, Blair. Good morning, Merle. Today we are talking about a pair of giant menu boards and stools that were used at a diner in Topeka, Kansas. So the menu boards got a bunch of food and prices listed on them. From 1953. And, yeah, you know. <laughs> from 1953. And the... Um, and the stool is like kind of like a bar stool, but it's like you would come sit yeah. up at, a, at, a, at a diner counter, and this is the stool you would sit on. Uh, the diner we're talking about is Bobo's, and it's become kind of a, t- a Topeka tradition, uh, and it's even attracted some national attention. Blair, Bobo's has been in operation since like 1948, uh, in one form or another, or one location or another. Uh, it is a restaurant unlike most today. Can you describe what Bobo's looks like and how it operates? Well, first, I guess you could say that it is not a regional, national, or international chain like McDonald's or anything else. This is truly local uh, and has been around for a while. Uh, it's a drive-in, uh-huh. which that, too, is sort of falling into... Not a drive-through. Not a drive-through. A drive-in. A drive-in. Uh, where you can get served at the at your car, mm-hmm. which yeah, the Sonic people do that today. But it's uh, it's still a good old-fashioned way of doing mm-hmm. it. It's uh, uh, and that's probably the biggest thing. There are they do still have car hops, which is unusual. I don't even think Sonic goes out to your car and takes your order. I think you the you you push the button. Push the button, yeah. And you, call in your. They will order. have somebody go out to the car and take your order at Bobo's. 
I hope that's still correct. Uh, <laughs> uh, but even if it's not, if you want to go into the restaurant, they do have counter space and booths that uh, you can sit down and take in the aromas and the atmosphere and uh, but, get a good idea of what the food is going to smell like. But yeah, like much like uh, much like your even Sonic, but I mean it's yeah. got that long sort of awning that you park your car yeah. under. Um, but unlike Sonic, where you push a button and you place your order, at this place you've you got you human still, service. You have a service that comes yeah. out, takes your order, yeah. and brings your food to it. And I think they still have the tray, right? That it clips onto your I window. I think so. Yes. Uh, and that you can spill into their lap, like it was a Happy Days opening. Yeah. Exactly, it's a, it's a very interesting. I mean, it's a very unique environment yeah. that is not replicated at, at places like Sonic. I mean, no. it's a little bit no, uh, it's different. It's a little bit different. The name is a little unusual and slightly reminiscent of Yogi Bear. Uh, the name Bobo <laughs> is derived from the fa- from the founding family, right. actually. Yeah, uh, who were the Bobos? And how did they get into the diner business? I'm not really quite sure who uh, what the uh, parents did, Bob and Elsie Bobo, uh, their son Orville, or Bob Jr., uh, as it is. Uh, were That's the all same guy, Bob Jr. and Orville? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's or, they're, they're interchangeable. Dad is also Orville, too. So it's Orville Jr., and I think there's even an Orville III running around today. <laughs> okay. I think he's a lawyer, actually. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, yeah, I'm not quite sure how Bob and Elsie got into it, except that it was 1948 and it's after World War II. I suspect that they thought they were looking around for a business that they could get into, and this certainly looked appealing. Orville Jr., he's, he's sort of an interesting character in himself in that he not only was running the restaurant for many years, but uh, he was an adjunct professor of music out at Washburn. So he was a he was a college level music teacher that just happened to be running a car hop too. Oh uh, well, well driving, yeah. Driving, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Um, and he actually composed a few things too, so which is a little different from what you might expect from a guy who's running a drive-in. That is. <laughs> But I know uh, today there's a location on 10th and McVicker, but that's not that wasn't where the first Bobos was, correct? The first one was at 1212 Huntoon. Uh, the building is still there, uh, but uh, the relatives of the family that were running it for many years, uh, I think it was 1988 when they finally retired, and at that point they closed down the, the restaurant at that location and left just the McVicker location. So looking at the menus... Um, According to the longtime operator, Orville Bobo, that's a, that's a bit of a, a mouthful there. Yeah. Uh, his restaurant was the first in Topeka to serve Coke and French fries. Um, is that true? Do you, is that really? Like, that's hard to believe that, that this was the first place to serve Coke and French fries. I, I think it's the way the newspaper article that I think we've both read is written. Uh, I don't think it's the first restaurant. I would be surprised if this was the first place that served Coke. I'd be surprised if it was the first place that had French fries. Mm-hmm. I think what it might be is is that it was the first drive-in that served Coke and French fries because the one article mentions another drive-in was just serving root beer. That makes a little bit more sense to me. So it, it was started, this particular one started in 1953. Would that have been... Um, would that have been in the early time, the early period for drive-ins, or would that have been about average to see drive-ins popping up at that point? I think that's probably about average, or probably others that were a lot earlier than that, because there's a lot of diners that are really 
all, just about anywhere that are opening up after World War II. Also on the sign, I noticed that it reads, Flash Headlights for Service. Um, that could be read the wrong way. I mean, it sounds like it could be a little <laughs> shady. But uh, I assume that is how you signal the server? Well, yeah, well, it would be shady if you were living in my neighborhood. But uh, no, it is it is how you signaled the server. It was that you were ready to order and that uh, flash the lights. They're supposed to see, should have seen you in the restaurant then or in the diner. And uh, they would come out to the car and take your order. Uh, among the items listed on the 19th, 1950s menu, because that's that's where these menus come from, correct? Yeah, they one come is from, 53, another is 54 or 55. So among the items listed on this menu is apple pie. Today, mm, apple pie. Bo- <laughs> Bobo's apple pie is rather famous. Uh, can you tell us what, where this idea of the apple pie comes from and and why Why did it become kind of a thing to serve it at Bobo's? Where does it come from? What kind of an American are you, anyway? <laughs> well, I don't mean that you have to tell me where <laughs> apple pie comes from. But why is apple pies famous at Bobo's? Why aren't they famous for their hamburgers? I, I think it's because of the way they make them. Uh, Orville Bobo always said that his mother and aunt sort of played around with a recipe for the apple pies and... They always made sure that they used fresh apples and then used the, uh, I forget what the exact word is, sublime or something, a mix of spices or something like that. Uh-huh, uh, some kind of gibberish. Yeah, uh, which made it very tasty, and uh, it's uh, certainly become very popular over the years. Uh, there are people that take pies that have moved away from Topeka. They go to Bobo's and get a pie so they can take home with them. But, uh, and I think they've had them shipped out over mm-hmm. around the country as well. And then uh, a few years ago, uh, Food Network came in here with their diners, drive-ins, and dives programs. And Guy Fieri was here uh, trying out the Spanish burger and the chili and the, the apple pies. And Fieri in his own way that I can't possibly duplicate just sort of goes... The apple pie is bananas, and by banana, bananas, I mean it's great. <laughs> yeah, he really, uh, he really liked the apple pie. He really did. So I and he even had a apple pie eating contest on that episode. Really? It? Yes. So I mean, it's uh, and I've had it myself, and I have to say, it is not over. It's not overly inflated. It is really good, good apple pie. Um, in 2010, Bobo's Drive-In was recognized as one of the eight wonders of Kansas cuisine. Sort of a play on the eight wonders of the world. Yeah. There was uh, eight wonders of Kansas cuisine that were selected. Um, there are a few other diners on the list. Um, can you give us three recommendations for Kansas diners? Oh. First, can you kind of qualify like what, what, you, what you take diner to mean? Okay, what I consider a diner is a, a p- small portable building that is prefabricated, usually stainless steel. Jeez, that's really specific. Yeah, well, there are diner fanatics that will come after you if they don't. Oh, okay. <laughs> don't spell it out this way. Uh, most of these are made on the East Coast, but we had one company here in Kansas, uh, Valentine, down in Wichita. That would make that the prefabricated diner, diner structures, structures and they could be shipped, shipped out. out anywhere. And they could be moved if they needed to be. So that, And that happened a lot of times. 
Now, you know, I am supposedly the guru of Valentine Diners, according to some people. Right. People are well, crazy, but... <laughs> you've seen a few, right? I have yeah. seen a few, and I would be remiss if I did not recommend that people go to our website and look at the list of Valentine Diner buildings that we go there, but if they really need some help, I can tell them some diners that are open in Kansas, that ready to be food, eaten at, mm-hmm. and... Not sure I'll recommend the food necessarily, but <laughs> most of them are pretty good. I've had meals at most of them. There's Spinner's in Anthony. There's Stacy's at Grandview Plaza. Bob's Diner at Liberal. Bob's Drive-In at Mead. I don't think it's the same Bob. Uh, Town Topic at Mission. The Beacon Cafe out at Norton. The Cookies Drive-In in Pleasanton. Bill's Diner here in Topeka and Wichita. That's where the mother load is. We've got Brent's. We've got the Dine Quake. We've got Sport Burger. We've got Taco Nacho. And just if you need ice cream on top of that, we've got uh-huh. three others that are mainly ice cream shops, although they serve food, too. They're out at Eureka, Dighton, and Garden Plain. So there's a lot of places right there. And if I've forgotten anybody, somebody contact me at B-T-A-R-R at K-S-H-S dot O-R-G. <laughs> Wow, Blair, you think, it sounds like you've discussed this diner topic before. Uh, no, not at all. No. If you don't scrub that kitchen floor, you ain't gonna rock and roll no more. Don't go back. Okay, the subject of today's concert quiz is food, glorious food. While talking about Bobo's, we mentioned the eight wonders of Kansas cuisine, and today's question focuses on one of those wonders, other than Bobo's. In Crawford County, the predominance of a certain food was recognized as the wonder of Kansas cuisine. What is that food, and make no bones about it. And when you finish doing that, bring in the dog and put out the cat. In 2011, the Kansas Historical Society published Kids Kansas, an educational activity book. More than just games, the activity book was designed to promote Kansas history in hundreds of classrooms across the state. Today, we go behind the scenes with co-editor Teresa Jenkins to find out if a museum can compete with corporate textbook companies. Kansas Kids is an activity book. Uh, What exactly is an activity book, Teresa, and how does it differ from a textbook? Well, I remember when I was in grade school, we had our textbook, that which you do not write in, very Mm -hmm. important. And then you had a companion workbook that made the practical application so you could actually work some problems for a math book or you could write out your spelling words if it was a reading book and so it was the part that you could write in you could tear out pages had activity pages and and fill in the blank kinds of things an activity book in this case kids kansas is not driven by a textbook so this is something that a teacher could pick up independently regardless of the grade it's really appropriate for grades K through seven, um, but it was geared to fourth grade based on the standards. So it can be used in a classroom, but it could also be used by people who are traveling through the state, whether or not they're from Kansas. Right. Lots of fun pages, puzzles, sticker pages. We've got tear out, activity cards, all kinds of things. Because when I think of activity book, I mean, I think of the uh, like Superman activity books or Hello Kitty activity books. And uh, though it is intended for a classroom, 
this is pretty much kind of like those activity books. It's a lot of fun. Right. There's some fun stuff to do in it. I'm not going to lie. They are kind of fun. But you say this is specifically geared towards fourth graders. It is. We took a look at the things that they're learning in fourth grade. They're learning about entrepreneurs. They're learning about statehood. They're learning about traveling on the trails. Uh, an exploration of the state. And we took, instead of taking, like like you said, Spider-Man or Hello Kitty, where they take the idea of a crossword, the idea of a word search, and they just make it look like something that kids would enjoy that has those themes, we took what th- we want them to learn and try to translate them to the puzzle format. Mm-hmm. Museums typically focus more on exhibiting artifacts from the past. Not too often do they produce a, an actual full-scale activity book. Why the shift to writing, uh, writing these kind of like classroom activity material? Well, as everyone knows, budgets are being cut, not just in our agency, but in schools. Um, they're, they're getting less money to do field trips and to come see us, to come see the artifacts. And so we really feel like we need to meet kids in classes where they're at. They're in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And so we found a way to take some of the collections, some of the stories, and the things we want them to learn and to take it to them, hopefully sparking enough of an interest that they'll come back on their own. Uh, just flipping through the book, I noticed several references to Kansans that invented stuff, like uh, Jack Kilby, who came up with the microchip, uh, and people who started companies, like the two guys from Wichita who started Pizza Hut. How does the microchip relate to pizza in a kid's activity book? Well, we're hopeful that Kids Kansas will become a series of activity books and not just be the first one. And so for that reason, we actually gave it a subtitle called I Am the Future of Kansas, which means that this one is about what you'll do when you grow up as a Kansan. You can be an entrepreneur like Jack Kilby and like Walter Anderson and like the people that started Pizza Hut, you can become whatever you want to be, hopefully somebody who will create a company that can be based in Kansas uh, and and help our state economically. Mm -hmm. How long did it take to develop this this workbook? And did you use anything as a a model? I mean, other than Spider-Man and uh, Hello Kitty activity (laughs) books, did you use any actual (laughs) (laughs) educational related models? Well, the fun thing for me is is a project manager and an editor is I enjoy Brennan or other editor who's awesome. She had written a lot of the text already when we started to kick this into high gear in February of this year. Mm -hmm. So it's just taken us a few months to really bring it to fruition. She had spent a lot of time doing some writing and thinking about what kind of stories we want to include prior to that. So if I were a teacher or a slightly uh, overachieving hovering parent (laughs) uh, that wanted to purchase this activity book, uh, how would I do it and what would it cost? You can go to our website, kshs.org, click on store or on the shopping cart. Uh, It'll take you to our online store. It's $8.95 retail, but I have good news. If you're a teacher, specifically if you are a fourth grade teacher in the state of Kansas, or if you're a homeschooling parent, Mm -hmm. you can get a free copy of Kids Kansas. All you have to do is send me an email at kidskansas at kshs.org. I'll send you a free copy. Uh, And then I'll also send you an order form because we're hoping you'll like it so much that you'll order a classroom set. If you order more than 10 copies of the book, it's only $5.40 apiece. And that includes grandparents. If you wanted to buy 10 copies for all your grandkids Mm -hmm. for Christmas gifts, um, we would be happy to sell them to you at the the bulk rate of $5.40 each. But go to our website and you can find out more about it there. Uh, The book is filled with activities, but uh, in my opinion, not just for kids. Uh, Teresa, what is your favorite activity? 
For me, and then I'll let you do yours, mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of the Sudoku page that discusses Takeru Higuchi, a Japanese-American at KU, and he, uh, I, love the, I love this, he revolutionized pharmaceuticals by inventing the time-release capsule. Isn't that amazing? So, yeah, <laughs> I can absolutely see how that would be, like, mind-blowing. Yes. But um, on his page, there's some Sudoku puzzles to kind of, uh, I don't know, I guess engage you in his story. Yeah, it And uh, I'm a big fan of those type of puzzles. Tradition. Yeah. And uh, this guy kind of always... I think it's uh, it's brilliant. It's so in your so obvious the time release capsule, but he invented it. Yeah. So, so what's your favorite? Well, you know, I am a big fan of not only time release medications, but <laughs> chocolate. <laughs> and so the page right opposite of Takeru Higuchi is Russell and Clara Stover, and on their page you'll find a kind of a matchup game. Find out of these several bonbons that are on there, find the two that are exactly alike. So I can stare and look at chocolate for several hours. And it gets my appetite going. Right, and it all bring it, it basically illustrates the story of Russell Stover, who was a Kansas yeah, Kansas was, guy who started a big candy company. He was, and he was born in a sod house. So I mean, how Kansas is that? And <laughs> from sod to floating chocolate. <laughs> sod to chocolate. Don't go back. Just finish cleaning up your room. I'm Blair Carr, and today's Kanza quiz was about the cuisine of Crawford County that made it one of the eight wonders of Kansas cuisine. And the answer in Pittsburgh and the surrounding area is fried chicken. No less than six restaurants in Crawford County have been feeding people chicken starting with Chicken Annie's in 1934, soon followed by Chicken Mary's in the 1940s. So we don't forget anybody, there's also Giffarts and Mulberry, Bartow's Idol Hour in Frontenac, and two Chicken Annie restaurants run by relatives of the original Chicken Annie's, Chicken Annie's Pitchler's in Pittsburgh, and Chicken Annie's Gerard, all serving homestyle chicken dinners. So the next time you're in Crawford County, bon appetit, y'all. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is Registrar Nikhila Zimmerman. Hello. And librarian Sarah Keckeisen. Yo. <laughs> Today we connect William Allen White, a small town newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to Harley Davidson, America's quintessential motorcycle company and preferred transportation of anarchists and hipsters alike. Sarah, could you give us a little background on Harley? You bet, Merle, and you've come to the right biker chick. (laughs) (laughs) The Harley-Davidson Motor Company is named for co-founders William Harley and Arthur Davidson and specializes in the production of heavy cruiser-type motorcycles known for their distinctive exhaust tone. Mm The company began in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in 1901 when a 21-year-old Harley worked with Davidson to design a small engine to go on a bicycle. I think that's funny that it all started with like a basically a moped. (laughs) (laughs) And a couple of little guys tinkering. However, those tinkerers, within six years, they were producing 150 bikes annually. Um, although they were best known for supplying local police departments, production at the Harley-Davidson plants went into high gear during World War I when the motorcycle entered combat. Mm. Considered to be the world's largest motorcycle company, Harley-Davidson was devastated by the Great Depression of the 1930s and was only one of two motorcycle companies to survive. That's pretty impressive that it they is. were able to defy. That's, Where did that's... the Indian come into that? Do we know? 
I, I think care? I think <laughs> it collapsed in the 30s. Is that why? I'm not sure. Maybe it's now? the other one that yeah, survived. Hmm. Anyway. Anyway, during the 1950s and 60s, Harley-Davidson did suffer a nasty reputation from cinematic associations with the lawless elements. Mm -hmm. Today, however, Harley-Davidson has rebounded to become a lucrative international brand with plans to expand into the motorcycle-hungry Asian market. So you have uh, do you have some sort of special affinity for the uh, for the biker culture, Sarah? Um, I no, <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to offend our rabid company of listeners by saying exactly what I do think of. Oh. <laughs> well, you know, I think that, that that part, you know, when they were working with a bicycle, that, like, plays right into Americans and how lazy we've gotten. Because their slogan originally was, like, make riding a bike easier. What? Right. I mean, come on. So the quest for... Nasty pedaling. <laughs> the yeah. quest for building uh, a motorcycle was because uh, pedaling yeah. was too hard. Don't burn any calories. Just ride a Harley. Uh, I don't know. But yeah. well, they were ahead of their time then, weren't they? Yeah. Wow. Uh, well, thanks, Sarah. Now to the game. As a contestant, Sarah, you will hear two chains of connection between William Allen White and Harley Davidson. You must pick the true six degrees of William Allen White from the false. Ooh, pressure. Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, Nikayla, you're going to go first. Okay. Well, though many know that Harleys were used in combat service during World War One and World War Two, it is a lesser known fact that the motorcycles were used by the military in the Pancho Villa expedition, which was actually the first time they were used in a military expedition. The Pancho Villa expedition was a military operation conducted by the U.S. Army to capture military insurgent Pancho Villa. One of the soldiers who participated in the action was Major General Frederick Funston, who we know was BFF with William Allen White <laughs> after the two met at KU. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, we don't, we don't, we don't talk about these solutions before we come up with them. I have one that's very similar. <laughs> but, but I just want you to know that people like Frederick Funston is often Nikayla's fallback when she can't think of anything else or can't she can't me? come up with a real one. Are, just keep is, that in mind. Is he throwing me off the center? <laughs> I think he's trying to. Uh, the first military deployment of the motorcycle came in 1916 when the American Expeditionary Force entered Mexico on the hunt for Pancho Villa. Among the expedition's officers was a young lieutenant named George Patton, who would later become an icon of World War II. As a young cadet at the Virginia Military Institute, Patton proved to be a versatile athlete by competing in the pentathlon, a grueling, prolonged sport that includes swimming, fencing, running, and horse riding. Uh, the pentathlon's often played by soldiers. Patton proved so skilled that in 1912 he competed in the Summer Olympics in Stockholm, Sweden. While there, Patton may have met William Allen White, who was there to cover the Olympics for the Adams Syndicate. Mm -hmm. huh. Well, this is a real toughie because it's almost the same story. <laughs> Weird. Uh, yeah, I, I, I hesitate... I don't know. I do know that George Patton was a, an athletic fellow, and I do believe he did participate in the Olympics. Did he not? This, well, I'm not asking did. you. I'm not asking you <laughs> uh, because you'll just lie to me. Uh, the link to William Allen White sounds a little tenuous, however. At best. At best. But, um, gosh. Um, I, think, I think I'll go with that 
the second one. I'm a, I, even though that's not solidarity with females. Hmm. You, you, you believe mine to be the true one? I believe yours to be the true one. Uh, mine's actually the false. Oh, yeah. I'll give you guys a hint. Anytime okay. Merle does a solution that involves William Allen White and athletics, it's never the right one. Right. No matter what, William Allen White had nothing to do I, I will tell you, sometimes I get desperate and, just, and I just say, well, he's there for reporting purposes. What? Uh, is that the word that. may should have been my... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't yeah. believe William Allen White so was, at the, was at those Olympic Games. <laughs> But okay, uh, it's all fun though. Um, what do I win? You didn't win anything. <laughs> you didn't guess. Right. <laughs> and even if you what had guessed right, prize? you still wouldn't win anything. Anyway. A box of macaroni and cheese. Our thanks for joining us. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Nikayla, would you like to issue the challenge for the next episode? You bet. Next week, we connect William Allen White to the Brooklyn Bridge in New York. Completed in 1883, this massive suspension bridge spans the East River to connect Manhattan and Brooklyn. Uh, continually on the verge of physical and financial collapse, the Brooklyn Bridge was a quagmire in its day. <laughs> Find out who ticked off more politicians, White or the Bridge, when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. That concludes episode 143. If you would like to see images of menu boards from this historic Topeka drive-in, go to kansasmemory.org, our online digital repository. The Kansas Museum of History now has its own Facebook page. Be sure to check us out. Come back in two weeks when curator Laurel Fritsch examines a hunting vest. Learn what makes a hunting vest a hunting vest and learn why game hunters like to wear road worker orange. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Museum of History. Real people, real stories. And it's my baby, and it's my baby, and it's my baby.